Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Special interview episode with Philippa Gregory on Maria Beatrice d'Este. E non posso più accucciarmi e così ritorno su Lasci colli nelle valli tra due salici piangenti Io ritrovo la speranza di un amore che ormai fu Well, I am as excited as a little schoolboy in a toy shop. On our humble little podcast, we got to host the international best-selling historical novel author Philippa Gregory in particular about her character in her book, but also a historical figure, Maria Beatrice d'Este, Queen of England, wife to James II. She has written many books, including The Other Berlin Girl and The White Queen, which have both been adapted to screen. She graduated from the University of Sussex and received a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, where she is a regent. She holds honorary degrees from Teesside University and the University of Sussex. She is a fellow at the University of Sussex in Cardiff and an honorary research fellow at Burbeck University, London. In 2020, she was made a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours for her service to literature and charity. Her new book, Dawnlands, sees the paths of a young Native American woman, a London trading family, the Queen of England and her lady-in-waiting cross paths with a background of the Protestant rebellions against King James II and the Glorious Revolution. I hope you enjoyed the interview. So hello, Philippa. Thank you very much for coming to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's, a pl- it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you very much for accepting. And this evening, Philip has been very gracious to accept the fact that I've sort of hijacked your book in a certain sense. So although we have spoken about the book in the intro, I'm going to ask you to focus a little bit more on one of the characters. We have historical character and a character in the book whom we see through the eyes of this lovely, if I may say, Machiavellian character, which is Livia Avery. Uh, and she's, she's our sort of um, view into the life of uh, the queen consort. Uh, and so we're, we're going to talk about Maria Beatrice d'Este, who uh, was the daughter of Duke Alphonse IV of Este. She was born in, uh, in 1658 in the Duchy of Modena and Reggio Emilia. So first of all, Philippa, can you give us a bit of context to the sort of environment she would have been born into? Well, her father died when she was quite young. And I think as a noble young lady, that's a big miss in those days because you don't have that sense of, in a very patriarchal society, you don't really have that sense of the leader of the house. But her mother, Duchess Laura, um, I'm really conscious now after I heard the lovely way you said Maria <laughs> Beatrice that I've been pronouncing her wrong in my mind for two years. Anyway, Duchess Laura, as I would say, how would you say? Would you say Laura? It would be Laura, but uh, I mean, that the Laura, I think, is perfectly oh, fine. Well, anyway, <laughs> Duchess Laura um, very much took control of Maria's life, uh, but her brother, Francesco, was uh, not a very obedient son, was always quite willful. So... 
all her life she had this tension between what she, what her mother wanted her to do and her concern for her brother's success. So I think they were they were in a sense of family who felt quite beleaguered about the circumstances they found themselves in. Certainly, uh, she knew she would have to make a good marriage, and Duchess Lara was picking out possible suitors from the earliest age, without a doubt. So she ended up choosing James, who would then become king. And how did that come about? And sort of what other options were on the table? Well, Duchess Lara was not a big fan of James. Uh, <laughs> like, and who could blame her? The UK, <laughs> well, Britain at the time was uh, staunchly uh, Protestant. And actually, James was, in a sense, only newly returned to the throne. They, we're talking six, in the 1680s, and uh, Charles II had been just restored to the throne in the 1660s. So it doesn't feel like a safe, established, tyrannical monarchy uh, locked into a Roman Catholic kingdom. It it would feel, I would imagine at the time, as, as the English were reputed to be incredibly unreliable, incredibly volatile, heretic and uh, rebellious. So she, he's not top pick. She, she probably wanted Mary to marry Charles of Spain, Charles II of Spain, but James, Duke of York, first wife died, leaving him with no son and heir. So he's going to, so he would have to marry again in the hopes of getting a boy. And um, his brother, Charles, was a little older than him. So the chances of Charles dying, Charles had no sons, the chances of Charles dying and leaving him to be King of England is pretty high. And I think Duchess Lara thinks she'll take a gamble on it. Yeah, might, uh, might end up with a, a queen, for, uh, her daughter being the Queen of England. So. It, which is which is worth something. To her credit, Mary of Medina didn't want to marry James at all. She wanted to go into a convent. She mm. was determined to take the veil. She was a profoundly and sincerely religious young woman. And it took uh, the Pope himself to persuade her to accept James's proposal, marry him, on the understanding that she was going to convert the heretics of England which is a disastrous mission. Well, that was the other side of the question, because you you were saying, Philippa, that uh, Laura, Duchess Laura and and Maria Beatrice herself were not too keen on the the English match, let's call it. How was she then perceived by the English, this this Catholic uh, future, possible future Catholic queen coming to the country? It seems now rather hard-hearted. She was a very beautiful young woman of 15. She was marrying a man 25 years older than her, uh, himself not very beloved of the people at all. Uh, But also you have to remember that the English people were a bit fed up with foreign uh, European Roman Catholic queens. Charles II's wife had not produced a son and was, you know, widely the Catherine of Braganza was widely regarded as a failure in that sense. Um, Also Roman Catholic, also suspect. The previous king's wife, Henrietta Maria, um, although had dutifully produced a range of sons, was tremendously problematic in England, um, being both Roman Catholic and incredibly interventionist in uh, Mm. politics. So there's a real sense that, like, we really don't need another uh, foreign <laughs> another princess. Foreign and princess the, stealing the, the, the queen jobs. Stealing <laughs> the queen jobs and putting their, you know, half foreign Roman Catholic babies potentially on the throne. Also, the previous wife to James II had been also very unpopular, um, 
an Englishwoman that had perhaps persuaded him to marry her after her pregnancy. So a sense of a jumped up courtship. So we don't want that either. Um, and she became Roman Catholic, which is another problem. So one of the difficulties that the English people have is that the Stuarts and their wives, or their, even their mistresses, all convert to Catholicism. And this is at a time where the English Reformation is so new that there are people who will know of people who gave their lives for their faith. So it's a very, very hot button. Yeah, definitely. And we, and we see a lot of that in the book, thanks to also the one of the main characters, which is Ned Ferryman, which is also another very interesting, well-rounded well character that we have. And so what was Mary's life like at court and, and as Duchess of York and then the Queen? In the book, at a certain point, you have her saying, actually, life is pain. So it can't have been sort of the best uh, uh, situation for her. I think it's very mixed. When she first sees her husband to be, she bursts into tears, which is <laughs> not, never a good sign. Not a good sign. Yes. Um, <laughs> but she gets sort of used to him, and he tells his daughters are her age. He actually tells his daughters he's brought them a little playmate, you know, oh, which right. is just so <laughs> nauseating to us now. She, we've got some records of her playing at snowball fights and running into the royal apartments with the king running after her, the duke, as he was then, pelting her with snowballs. So I think in the early years, when Charles II was still on the throne and they were just a duke and duchess, it was probably more playful and less difficult. But uh, even then, there was a real feeling that uh, what the English didn't want was another Roman Catholic family being put over them. And so a lot of the time they're in exile, they get sent away to Scotland to court in Edinburgh, really in the hopes that people aren't going to see them. And then when Charles dies, they come back and take the throne. And there's there's um, there's a sort of a, a bounce of popularity because, you know, the old king is dead, but at least we've got at least we've got a king. It's not yeah. that he died without an heir, but we've got an heir. And they completely throw that advantage away by their incredible stupidity in insisting upon a Roman Catholic practices at court, in expanding and opening the country to Roman Catholic evangelical priests. I mean, evangelical in the sense of spreading the religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or re-spreading the religion. <laughs> yeah, returning the religion, mm. opening Roman Catholic schools. I mean, they say that every town had a Roman Catholic school in it at a time where there's not that much education from the Church of England. I mean, it was a real disaster. And there's, first of all, this rebellion from the Earl of Arran in Scotland, which everybody kind of gets on James's side for. Then the Duke of Monmouth, the Protestant Duke, um, bastard of Charles II, lands in the West Country and has this surge of popular uprising, very much based on religion and against tyranny, which is where Ned Ferryman, who you mentioned, comes into the picture as an ex-Cromwellian soldier who really joins in on this and, and sees it as a step forward in the democratisation of England. And that rebellion is defeated and put down so savagely and so barbarously that even the people who supported the monarchy are starting to wonder if they're not going to be tyrannical, as the European Catholic monarchs are supposed to be. And then thereafter, James insists on keeping a standing army and the whole sense of the country turns against him. They just don't think he can be trusted. And they're terrified of him bringing in the Irish Roman Catholic soldiers against 
English Protestants. And part of the terrible divide that remains uh, for Britain and Europe today over the fact that Ireland was colonized and terrorized by the English. It doesn't start now, but it, this is a real problematic point for it. Of course, yeah, definitely even a push more, in, in that direction. Yes. Yeah. And even more when William of Orange comes in and, you know, finishes off what Elizabeth I started. I mean, it's it's a very dark, very dark days in English history. And so then William of Orange does come. I don't think we're going to spoil anything there from the book. And Mary and James are forced to flee. We have a, this adventurous uh, escape in the book, thanks also to, to Livia, who intervenes with the, with the ferryman uh, family. And so she spends the, the, the last of her days in exile, the queen over the sea. What, what, what was that like for her? I think it was, I, I mean, I think it was probably nicer than being queen of England with the rebellion going on almost all the time. She lives very close to the French court. She's very well regarded in the French court. She works almost as a queen. James, who's widely disliked, uh, has a stroke and dies quite early on. Of course, she is very much younger than him. And then she regards herself as regent to her son, Charles Edward, who is, who is known as the young pretender and who continues to expect to go back to England to acclaim as England moves on to the uh, incredibly unglamorous but very Protestant uh, Hanoverian monarchs. <laughs> you then have this tradition in England, which is, you know, we do love a loser, which is um, the king over the water, uh, to which everybody pledges their, their troth, but never, ever turns out to support them when they land for yes, the hope. when the time comes. That, uh... Exactly. Yeah. And, we like and in, in researching Mary... Uh, you you may you will have come to know her quite well. How do you feel about her? And I mean, the the way we see her in the book does that reflect your feelings about her? And what kind of relationship did you have with with her in the end? Well, as you say, she's seen a lot through the eyes of uh, Livia, and mm -hmm. I apologise to all Italian women at this point. <laughs> Livia is the classic, yeah, Machiavellian mother-in-law. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, so beloved of English Victorian fiction. So, like, I literally borrowed her from other people's novels, and I'm sorry because I know a number of Italian women and I like them very much, and they're none of them complete snakes like Olivia is. <laughs> yes. She's such a great character, right? She's, she's wonderful. She's just a wonderful character. So, she, she's so turned out she, so well. She's completely fictional, and her view of Mary of Medina is quite exploitative. And one of the tensions in their relationship is that Livia actually genuinely feels for her and genuinely feels loyalty for her but her default mode is always what is going what is going to be good for Livia so it's quite an interesting relationship to describe but Mary herself I think was extraordinarily charming obviously evidently beautiful but also very very courageous the uh, mm. escape that you mentioned when she takes her baby and she crosses the river in a little worry boat in a storm in the night to find the carriage on the other side to take the carriage which is supposed to take them to France and then they have to charter a boat and go under their own steam her husband's not with her yeah. she's got a, a French spy helping her but she's on her own with her ladies-in-waiting and her baby and she does that journey uh without hesitating so that she does actually get out the country. Livia is a fictional creation who is with her, but actually the journey is copied from the historical chronicles so of the So it's a time. real, real journey. It's a real journey. Yeah. And she is outstandingly courageous in it. 
Wonderful, Philip. I really wish we had more time. Maybe we'll, we'll have a chance to, to speak again. So uh, Dawn lands out on the 8th of November, correct? That's right. Okay. And uh, all bookshops, I imagine, Amazon, etc. But let's try and support our local bookshops, of course. Independent bookshops and anywhere you get books. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much, Philippa. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. (laughs) Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed the interview. If you're not a regular listener of A History of Italy, it is a chronological history of the Italian peninsula from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to the current day, if we ever get there. We try and make this complicated history a bit more interesting by throwing in the occasional rabbit winning a siege, swords stuck up places we shouldn't mention, pet elephants that may or may not have been spoiled to death, and we also throw in the occasional reenactment of how we believe certain historical events went down. You can listen to A History of Italy wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com And we are also on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Go and buy your copy of Dawnlands. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.